Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earl. We're here today with Jonah Berger talking about how to get your way with your teenager. It turns out that there are certain words that just tend to work better than others when we're trying to convince people to do what we want. And Dr. Jonah Berger has spent years researching those words, and now he's written a book about it. We're going to talk about what the research shows on how we can change the way we phrase things to get better results with our teenagers. And we're also going to see that the ways we're phrasing things right now might actually be backfiring. All that and more is coming up on the show today. Dr. Berger, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me back. Hey, this is really exciting. As soon as I saw your new book, I was so intrigued. It's called Magic Words, What to Say to Get Your Way. And I know a lot of parents of teenagers wondering what to say to get their way with their teenagers. So I'm really interested to dive into this one. Fantastic. What was it about that topic that you said, hey, I got to write a book because this is now you've written a few books on other on different topics. What made you think, hey, the next one's got to be about words or language? You know, I don't have to tell you that we use language all the time. Uh, language is how we talk to our family members. Uh, it's how we send emails. It's how we make phone calls at the office. It's how we make pitches or talk to colleagues, even our private thoughts. Uh, rely on language. But while we spend a lot of time thinking about what we want to talk about, so if we're uh, talking to a teenager, for example, we might want to have a conversation about how they're doing in school or how their sports are going or their friends. We, we've thought about the topics we want to discuss. We often think a lot less about the particular words we want to use. And unfortunately, that's a mistake because subtle shifts in the language we use can have a big effect on our impact. Adding a certain word to request, for example, can make people about 50% more likely to say yes. Uh, rather than saying we like something, saying we recommend it makes other people about a third more likely to take a recommendation. And everything from the language uh, of email to the language people use in a variety of other contexts leave behind subtle but important clues about who they are and what they're likely to do in the future. And so it's clear that language is important. How can we harness it? And so that's what the book is all about, really. What are these magic words and how can we take advantage of their power? And you kind of categorize them or something. You go through all these different ways that language can influence us, uh, but they really kind of fall into certain categories or buckets. Yeah, so in doing work in this area as well as uh, looking at others' work in the area, I found that there are six key types uh, of language, six sort of key buckets of magic words that increase our impact in a variety of different ways. And so I put those six in a framework. Uh, it's called the SPEAK framework. It's an acronym. The S stands for the language of similarity and difference. The P stands for the language of posing questions. The E stands for the language of emotion. The A stands for the language of agency 
and identity. Uh, the first C stands for the language uh, of confidence, and the second C stands for the language of concreteness. And for those who are following along going, wait a second, speak doesn't end with a two Cs, it ends with a K. You're exactly right. I wasn't clever enough uh, to come up with an acronym uh, that ended uh, with uh, K is one of the more difficult Scrabble letters, it turns out. So I don't feel as bad, uh, but uh, hopefully the two C's will help make it even more memorable. Yeah, it definitely sticks with me. One thing you talk about in the book that's really interesting to me is this idea of turning actions into identities. What does that mean? Yeah, so first of all, stepping back just to talk about the bucket that's in a little bit. You know, we often think about language as communicating ideas, uh, what we want, uh, what we want someone to understand, information. But language also suggests what it means to engage in a particular action, who's responsible, who's to blame, uh, and a variety uh, of other things. And so it's important to understand this function uh, of language and how it can communicate both agency and identity. And so in terms of the specific uh, aspect of language communicating identity, there was a study done uh, a number of years ago on, on how to persuade others. So some researchers at Stanford University were interested in the, in the language of persuasion. How can we uh, encourage other people to do the right thing in different situations? So they went to a local preschool uh, and they asked four and five-year-old kids to, to do something that kids are sometimes a little bit reticent to do, which is help clean up a classroom. So there were crayons on the floor, there were books, there were, you know, little trucks and various different things. And the researchers came in and they said, hey, to the kids, they said, hey, can you help clean up? But they didn't just say that exactly to all the kids. For about half the kids, they said, hey, can you help clean up? And for the other half of the kids, they tried a slightly different approach. Rather than asking people to help, they asked them to be a helper. Now, the difference between help and helper is quite small. Uh, you know, it's just adding two letters, an E and R uh, at the end. But asking people to be a helper rather than help led to about a 30% increase in the likelihood that students helped up. And you could say, well, that's interesting, but that's just kids in a classroom. You know, would this, would this apply to teenagers? Would this apply to adults even for more consequential behaviors, things that take more effort or more difficult? So a couple of years ago, some researchers uh, followed up uh, and they looked at a much more consequential behavior, and that is voting. So they uh, went to individuals and they said, hey, uh, will you please go vote? Uh, but for half of them, again, they tried a subtly different approach. Rather than asking them to vote, they asked them to be a voter. Now, again, the difference between vote and voter is quite small. Here it's just a single letter, adding an R to the end uh, of the word vote. Yet adding that just that single letter, the letter R, led to about a 15% increase in people's likelihood of voting. And so the question you could ask is, well, what gives, right? Why is helper more impactful than help? Why is voter more impactful than vote? And it turns out, as exactly as you alluded to at the beginning, it comes down to the difference between actions and identities, right? We all know that we should take certain actions. We know that we should help and vote and do a variety of other things that are good and important and valuable, but we're busy and we might not want to do those things, particularly if we're a teenager and our parents are the one asking. Uh, but we care a lot more about than specific actions are holding desired identities. We all want to see ourselves as smart and efficacious and intelligent and a variety of other things. And so we engage in actions that allow us to feel like we hold those identities, right? If, if we want to feel athletic, we go for a run once in a while. If we want to feel like we know a bit about technology, we might read things on social media or, you know, check out new tech gadgets. And so if actions become opportunities to claim desired identities, 
Well, now we're much more likely to take those actions, right? Helping is fine, but being a helper, being able to show myself and others that I am a helper, well, now I'm much more likely to take that action, right? Voting, sure, voting is a good thing, but showing myself and others that I am a voter, now I'm much more likely to do it. And so by turning actions into identities, we can make people much more likely to take those actions. And so it, this is certainly powerful for, for persuading others, right? It, thinking about it, when we want someone to do something, turning actions into identities is a way to get them to do it. The same actually even holds on the negative side, right? Uh, uh, losing is certainly bad, right? No one wants to lose, but being a loser is even worse. Oh, gosh, yeah, nobody wants that. Yeah, yeah you know, uh, nobody wants to cheat on a test. Cheating is obviously bad, but being branded a cheater would be even worse. And so research finds that when suddenly when cheating would make you a cheater, right? Well, now people are less likely to do it. And so if we want people to avoid undesired behavior, right? Frame them as identities, not just actions. Think about that old anti-littering campaign. They didn't just say don't litter. They said, don't be a litter bug. Hold on, I don't want to see myself as a litter bug. So now I'm less likely uh, to litter. And so by, by turning these actions into identities, we can persuade others. We can even affect our own behaviors or the way that people are perceived. If I told you about two friends of mine, uh, one who runs and one who is a runner, who would you guess runs more often? The person who runs or the person who is uh, is a runner? Well, the runner obviously runs more, yeah. Yeah, it seems like it's a part of who they are, right? If I tell you someone drinks coffee, you say, oh, they like coffee. If I say they're a coffee drinker, you go, wow, they must really drink coffee. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. If they bake once in a while, okay, they like baking. If they're a baker, that's part of who they are. And so if we want people to sort of take uh, things or see others particular ways, we can describe them those ways. You know, think about describing someone as a hard worker rather than hardworking. Now it seems more like a stable part of who they are. Even the whole idea of being a creator, right, or being an influencer, it's taken something that is really an action, uh, influence, or uh, creating something and made it seem more like a stable part of who people are, right? Yeah, you turn it into a permanent label and yeah. kind of stick it on the person. <laughs> yeah, Right. Now it seems like it's a much more like a full-time job. It is part of who they are. They're going to do it in the future. It's a serious thing, not just an action. Wow. Yeah, I love that. And uh, it's also strikes me that it, what you're really doing is kind of making it really obvious how your actions reflect on who you are as a person. It really makes... Uh, you know, doing this and vocalizing it like that it really makes you think about how the things that you do make up who you are. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, we all care about actions. We certainly do. But but identities are even more important. You know, see, you know, think about teenagers. You see oneself as a gamer or a theater kid or a jock or, you know, those identities are so important. And so much of what people do is to gain or avoid those identities, right? You know, you don't want to do this thing because it would make you not just have done that thing, but seem like a certain type of person. And so by using language to frame actions as identities, either desirable or undesirable identities, we can encourage people to take desired actions or avoid undesired. Also, you have this really interesting discussion in here on could versus should. And yeah, it got me thinking a lot about how a lot of times our teenagers are wondering what they should do or asking us for advice on whether they should do something or shouldn't do something. And I love kind of thinking about maybe using could. 
Yeah. So, you know, imagine your son or daughter is trying to figure out what to do in a difficult situation with their friend at school. And, you know, uh, you're trying to think about what you should do, or they're trying to think about what they should do, or, you know, maybe in their trouble and they did something wrong and they're trying to figure out what they should do, or maybe they're trying to figure out how to deal with a difficult situation in a classroom. In these situations, we as problem solvers, as well as helpers of problem solvers, often do exactly what you said. We think about what we should do. You know, hey, you're having a fight with a friend. What should you do in that situation? Hey, your son or daughter's in trouble. What should they do in that situation? And so we often think about what we should do. But a few years ago, researchers wondered, again, if language could help, if the words we use to talk about how to solve these problems might help us actually do a better job at solving them. And so they had people face a variety of different problems, you know, uh, difficult things uh, that were tough to get out of. And for some people, they encourage them to use the common approach to solve such problems, right? They ask them to think about what they should do. Faced with this problem, think about what you should do, and then write down what you would do at the end. But for another set of people, they use a very subtle shift. Rather than asking them what they should do, they ask them what they could do. Now, again, the difference between could and should is pretty small, right? It's only a few different letters on the beginning of the word, yet that small shift led people to come up with much better solutions. People that come up and were encouraged to think about what they could do rather than what they should do came up with better and more creative solutions at the end. And if you think about why, it's fascinating. When we think about what we should do, we feel like there's only one answer, right? There's only one answer. We got to figure out what we should do. There's one right answer. I just have to figure it out. But sometimes we're stuck where nothing seems like the right answer. And so we don't look broadly. Whereas when we think about what we could do, Right? Coulds really encourage us to widen our viewpoint a little bit, right? We don't just think about there's one right answer. There are many things that we could do. Now, by the way, not all of them may be the right answer. Not all of them may be good courses of action. But by at least considering things more broadly, uh, by thinking about what we could do more, more broadly, we're more likely to reach a better solution in the end. I think so often we get into black and white mode of only thinking there's kind of one possible course of action or not kind of getting creative about potential solutions. And I love just that simple tool of kind of trying to catch yourself or notice when you're using the word should or when your teenager is using the word should I do this, should I do that, or trying to decide whether I should do this or that, and kind of just then swapping it with could. And it just feels better. It feels so much more creative or like there's so much more possibility. Certainly. And again, I mean, I think it points to this, we're still talking about the language of agency and identity, and it points to how language can make us feel like we're more in control, right? When we're thinking about what we could do, suddenly we're not forced to do one particular thing. We, it seems like there are a bunch of options and we have to figure out kind of what's best for us. And so it puts us more in the driver's seat, helping us come up with a better solution overall. One thing that found fascinating and particularly, I think, useful for teenagers in situations where parents are sort of dealing with teens, you know, I remember when I was a teenager and I, I often felt, you know, when I was giving a presentation at school or doing something like that, I would often get very anxious, right? You know, you haven't done that many times before. You have to get up in front of an auditorium of people or a classroom and make a presentation. And I, I think a lot of young people struggle with those moments of anxiety, right? Or, you know, you don't have to get up in front of others, but you're just faced with a difficult assignment, right? And you're struggling and, you know, you've never done it before and you're trying to figure out how to solve that problem. And so, you know, often in those situations, we use very negative self, what's called self-talk. You know, we say, oh, you know, 
uh, I'm going to screw this up. I don't know if I can do it. I'm, you know, I'm going to fail. What are people going to think about me if I don't do a very good job? We talk to ourselves quite negatively. What's interesting, though, is if you look at how we would talk to a friend in that situation, right? Think about if our best friend was stuck in a a similar situation, right? They were worried about how they were going to do on a test or they were worried about a big presentation. What would we do? We'd probably come in and say, you can do it. You know, you did it last time. You'll do such a great job. You know, you can do it because we're not as close to the situation. It's not us. It's somebody else. We can sort of take that distance And we can be more helpful. We can see that, yeah, you know, you did it last time. You're going to do it fine. And so one thing you might wonder is, well, why can't we do this for ourselves, right? Why can't we take that distance for ourselves when we're stuck in those situations and realize, you know, well, we did do it last time. We should be able to do it this time. And part of the reason is we're so close to it, right? We're so close to we have these negative emotional reactions. And so some researchers from the University of Michigan wondered if they could, again, use language to, to help people get out of this tough situation. And they had uh, students, uh, college students, make a difficult presentation. They were told, look, you have five minutes to make this presentation. You know, think about your dream job. You know, you're going to do an interview with other people to see if you can get this job. And so obviously students were, you know, quite anxious about how it was going to go. And for some of them, they told them to use the traditional approach of self-talk, which is talk to yourself in the first person, right? You know, think about, um, use words like I and, and so on. But for another group of the students, they encouraged them to see it like a third person would, right? Like an outsider would saying things like, you know, you can do it or, you know, use the word you rather than I or simply use the person's name, right? So think about, uh, you know, sometimes people talk to themselves in third person. They say, you know, I would say, oh, Jonah, you know, you messed up or oh, Jonah, you can do it. And so what they found was interesting. So in both situations, people were anxious. But in the situation where people used that outside perspective, they used language like an outsider, they gave much better presentations. They were evaluated more positively. They did a better job in part because they were less nervous. And the reason they were less nervous is when you talk to yourself as an outsider would, it encourages you to take that outside perspective. It encourages you to see things like an outsider would and say, you know, hey, Jonah, you can do it, right? You know, you did it last time. You can do this. You've got this. Rather than saying I can't, rather than I'm going to mess this up, using that you language helps give us a little bit of distance from the situation and do a better job as a result. That's so powerful. Or also, I think, yeah, helps you actually kind of put it, get an answer. Otherwise, a lot of times, I think your self-talk can just kind of spin in circles when you're asking questions you're not even answering or thinking about, oh, this is so terrible. Oh, this is so terrible. Or why do I have to do this? Why do I put myself in this situation? Or why do I always do these things to myself? And kind of like just or beating yourself up a little bit without really actually getting any closure or getting anywhere. And by stepping back a little bit like that and take, getting rid of the eye, I think yeah, it kind of also helps you sort of put a stop to those cycles. Yeah, and there's so much, I think, in language that we don't realize. I mean, even think about something like the word you, right? So, you know, I'm not a parent of a teenager, but I do have some young kids. And, you know, when talking to others, we often use the word you. We say, you know, hey, did you do your homework? Did you clean your room? Did you walk the dog? To a spouse, you might say, did you make dinner? And often we use these words very non-consciously, right? We're just asking a question. We want to know, is the room clean? Did the dog get walked? You know, is there going to be dinner? Or do I need to go make it? But as a listener, right, if we're not careful, those yous can feel really accusatory. 
right? Someone can feel like, what do you mean? Why was it my job to walk the dog? Maybe my brother or sister should have walked the dog. Or why didn't you walk the dog? Or, you know, what do you mean? Why didn't, you know, did you make dinners? How my responsibility? Why, you know? I just got home. What are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> and so these accusatory use that we don't mean an accusatory way, but it can often sound quite accusatory when we really mean is, did the dog get a walk, right? Uh, you know, is dinner ready? Or do I need, do we need to help with it? You know, we're really just looking for information, even at the office, right? Did that, did you finish the report? We're really asking is, did the report get done? And so we need to use the word you carefully. You can be great in some ways. You is really good for grabbing attention, but you can also suggest blame, right? You can suggest responsibility. I did a big analysis a couple of years ago for a large consumer electronics firm looking at all their customer support pages. So, you know, imagine you have a problem with your phone or your computer and you go to their website and you look up, you know, specific issue and some pages say things like, oh, you know, if your phone breaks, you need to reboot your phone and then connect to this. And then you need to go do this, that, and the other thing. And we found that the more that pages used words like you or, or your, the less helpful people found them. And it was a bit surprising to say, well, why would the word you make pages feel less helpful? But when we dug deeper into it, what we realized is people felt like, wait, if it's using the word you a lot, people felt like they had to do the work right? You know, I have to reboot my phone and do all these other things. And, but it's not my fault that the phone broke, right? It's kind of your phone. I paid the money for it. Your phone broke. Why is it my responsibility to do all this work? And so you can be great and powerful in positive ways, but it can also be really accusatory. It can suggest blame or responsibility in ways that we may not intend. And so when using words like you, we really need to think about who the audience is and how it might impact we're here with Jonah Berger talking about some magic words parents can use to get their way with their teenagers. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. If we know that the test went well or we know that something went pretty well, we're trying to reinforce them positively, then make them feel like it went well for them. The test didn't just go well. They did well, right? On the other hand, uh, if it didn't go well, right, we want to be really careful of saying they didn't do well. Instead, saying the test didn't go well, that's doing it a little bit different, distancing it from the self, right? I'm still smart and capable. The test didn't go well for me this time. Hopefully it will next time. All of us have friends that when they open their mouths, everybody listens. And sometimes we say, oh, you know, I wish I could be like that. We think it's some innate capability that they may have. Um, well, what's interesting is actually a lot of that comes not from who they are, but from the language they use. There are a variety of different ways to use language to communicate certainty or confidence. One of them is actually the language of tense. So if someone comes and they say, hey, the beach is amazing, rather than the beach was amazing, you're much more likely to want to go there in the future. And the reason why is that using the present tense makes the communicator seem more confident, makes them seem more certain. If we want to communicate confidence, we want to persuade others, right? We got to remove those filler words. We use them because they're easy. It's a great crutch when we don't know what to say. We often say an um or uh to buy us time where we're figuring out what to say next. Pausing is usually much more effective. It's a good way to rather than fill the space with something that's not valuable, draw others' attention in and give us a chance to think about what to say. 
Think about what it's like to be a teenager. You're, in some sense, you're trying to define your identity. You're in a constant sense of uncertainty about your place in the world, about your place in friendship network, what life is going to be like for you. You don't have a lot of control over your life. And if someone comes in and they're like, this is how it is, you're probably going to say, no thanks. But at least sometimes, once in a while, if that person's willing to be like, look, you know, I had these challenges. I'm not completely certain about these things, but I'm just trying to do my best. I'm trying to help you get where you want to go. You know, and obviously in some cases you want to be certain, right? When you want to communicate that this is the way it should be. But in other cases, using a bit more uncertain language can increase that chance of social connection. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get access to all the interviews I've conducted, as well as new episodes weeks before the general public. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.